Good morning. I am so grateful to be here with you. Um, I've had the good fortune to have uh, served in this pulpit, uh, I think once before, but also to be involved with you in some other things. And I'm very, uh, very grateful to be here with you this morning. I'm a great admirer of your minister, Frank Clarkson. And um, I want to also um, share greeting and affection from my home church in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, South Church, uh, where uh, Frank is preaching this morning. So I have a special sense of um, gift in our exchange this, today. So um, first I want to be sure you can hear me. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Okay. Okay, I have, a, I have a voice that sometimes can be heard and sometimes not. So I will project. Some time ago, I read a New York Times Magazine article called, What Does a Parrot Know About PTSD? The article and the accompanying photographs have stayed with me a long time. Set in a parrot sanctuary called Serenity Park on the grounds of the VA Medical Center in Los Angeles, it concerns the relationship between damaged birds and the traumatized vets who care for them by feeding them, cleaning their cages, petting them, and speaking to them. The birds return affection, and they do. I've had birds for pets. Um, the birds return affection by nuzzling and grooming the vets. The photographs in the article capture this synergy between them. The images also convey the character of each bird, its particular beauty. Uncanny because the birds have plucked their own feathers and chewed their own flesh leaving rough patches of naked quill and sore skin. Rescued from owners who kept them in too small cages or clipped their wings, these traumatized birds were left alone too long in barren spaces with too little nourishment. Part of how the photographer captures the dignity of each creature is through the use of profile and shadow so that half the face is hidden or the head is bowed. He understood, that photographer, that it would be important not to approach the animal's woundedness too directly. The images reminded me of the women I work with at the Strafford County House of Corrections in Dover, New Hampshire. And it's my dearest hope that I'll present them to you now with an equal measure of that photographer's discretion and respect. For the sake of the women, yes, but as well for you, who have incarcerated family members or friends, perhaps, or you who may have been victims of crime. The 10 
or so women I see each week in creative writing circles are participants in a 90-day program called Therapeutic Community, or TC. They eat, sleep, and work in one room. Their hours are filled with AA meetings, parenting programs, Bible study, sitting meditation, and creative writing with me. I'm actually one of many volunteers who offer what we can into the lives of the inmates there. The women and I meet around three plastic tables that we push together. It's a rectangle, really, but there's the sense of a circle. The prompts I bring get us writing about what we love, what hurts us or what has angered us, what we're ashamed of, and what we long for. I write with them, and we're often enough transported as we write, and we forget time, which is perhaps the greatest gift that we share with one another, this forgetting of time. And sometimes we discover a wholly new part of ourselves. I didn't know, they say, sharing their writing, how much was in me. I didn't know, they say, listening to each other's work, how much was in you. The writing is enjoyable, perhaps even valuable in a therapeutic sense, but I don't kid myself. I've come to understand that my presence in the circle is really maybe even all that matters. Following a prompt I offered a few years ago about what gives hope, one of the women in the circle, and for the sake of this morning's um, sharing with you, I'm going to call her Rose. She's quoted at the top of your order of service. Um, that's not her real name. Shared her piece, which included a line from the poem uh, The Thing Is by Ellen Bass, the one you heard Diane just read a few moments ago. Rose wrote, I feel hope every time the door opens and someone comes in from the outside, bringing the scent of another life. I can smell rain on them, snow. I can even smell the hurry of what came before and the kindness, too, if there is that. They have no idea how important that is to me. It's like what Ellen Bass's poem says about loving life again. When someone comes in from the outside, I feel I can hold life like a face between my palms and love it again. Well, that's the beginning of a poem, or what I would call a poem seed. Rose didn't know this, and perhaps she wouldn't even care. What was important to her, what she was laying claim to, is the awareness that her hope is kindled every time someone walks through the door, bringing the scent of another life. Each singular, haunted, hopeful soul in our circle is utterly unique in the way she writes, laughs, or listens. 
in the way she gets angry, or in the way she withdraws. But in general, Rose is like the others. I want to share a little bit about how she's like the others. They're young, mostly in their 20s. They're addicts, all of them. Meth, heroin, both, everything. They are dropouts, mostly poor. All of them have been abused, many are mothers. They miss their children with an unrelenting sorrow and shame. Every woman I've come to know tries to live each day with her shame, which is not guilt, that is regret, and that's different from shame. Each lives with the conviction that she is her sin, a shame so weighty it could and sometimes does, I'm afraid, overwhelm her. They've lost teeth, these young women, and the medical care they access at the jail is, for some of them, the first medical care they've received. But they change visibly over the three months that they're in TC. Their skin clears up. Their hair dye fades. They look in their eye, the look in their eye is clearer and it's more direct. I'm with any one group of women for only a short time, relatively speaking. They cycle through this TC program over the course of a three-month period, and some of them head back to the general population unit where they'll finish out their sentences, mostly sleeping. Some will be sent to federal prison some enter halfway houses, and some will finally go home. I usually don't hear what happens next, actually. So I imagine them in different lives. I imagine them sober. I imagine them strong, healed. They're thriving and no one's hurting them. They're not hurting anyone. They're taking care of their children and they're employed, earning enough to pay their bills. This is how I pray for them, by holding them in the light of the dreams I know they have for themselves, the dreams they write about in our circles. But I'm not naive. Going home more often than not means returning not well enough equipped to the poverty, abuse, and drug networks that first led to their incarceration. I do sometimes hear what happens next. Some time back, a woman who'd been part of an earlier group returned. That's never a good thing, that returning. Her reappearance meant a second incarceration and here she was. Remember me, Brittany asked. I do, I'm glad to see you. She knew the routine, my opening reading, a set of agreements for how we will be together as a circle of writers, 
and then the prompt. I began with a reading of Ellen Bass's poem. Here's just part of it again. When grief sits with you, its tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weights you like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief. You think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes. And you say, yes, I will take you. I will love you again. After reading the poem, I invited us to write about what gives us hope, what helps us survive an obesity of grief. We wrote for a while, our silence giving each of us room and privacy for our thoughts, and then we shared our poem seeds. The rough drafts always point toward our common humanity, the ways we're bound together as one how we suffer, what we long for, how we might heal. And our sharing is a kind of accompaniment or witness, the true gift of our circle. After sharing our reflections, I stopped by Brittany's seat on my way out. You have to push a buzzer and wait for a guard to let you out or in, and sometimes that takes a few moments. I had that prompt before, Brittany said. I used some of them more than once, I answered, feeling vaguely sheepish about that and trying to remember if I had used Bass's poem before, too. I had. It's okay, she said. I like it. Still waiting at the door, I asked about the others in Brittany's previous group three years ago. What had happened next for them? Where were they now? Asking these questions, I was ignoring an inner voice that cautioned against my impulse to know. The voice was saying, let it be, Kimberly. But here I was, asking Brittany about Cindy, Evelyn, Maria, Tiffany, Rose. Rose is dead, she whispered, an overdose. I could hardly breathe. But I know this is one way that the lives of those we care about sometimes end and our hearts get broken. Heartbreak and hope are woven together in our care for one another. But for me, that braid might in time fray if I didn't also come to see that all our lives are one life. It's hard for me to extricate myself or my story from the circle of women and theirs. I've done things in my life I deeply regret 
And it's not hard for me to imagine what desperation, powerlessness, and addiction can lead a soul to. In a deeply human way, we are, are, excuse me, we women are familiar, which is not to ignore the real differences between my circumstances and theirs, my good fortune above all. But if one enters into something with one's whole self, shows up in the fullness of one's being, then it's hard to say whose story is unfolding because everyone's story is unfolding and everyone is altered in some way through shared storytelling. By sharing the same space and listening to one another, by speaking plainly and truthfully about our lives, pain is soothed. Suffering, perhaps only briefly, is relieved. And a new kind of story a saving story doesn't always emerge, but may emerge. We all here know the power of accompaniment, of, of witness, the profound gift of someone's presence with us when we're lonely, sick, or afraid. Not to offer advice or point the way, but to bring the scent of another life as Rose herself once put it, if only for a little while. For some of the women, the experience they have in TC doesn't lead to renewed dignity, a new life. Half the women don't thrive, and there are so many complicated reasons for this. But half do. In time, half the women begin to sketch the rough outlines of a new vision for themselves, a vision helped along by concrete support, yes, 12-step programs, therapy, living wage work, family, and friends. And our accompaniment, something any of us can bring to anyone who is suffering, offers gentle and life-giving witness. And we do this for each other because all our lives our one life. So it's good each Thursday morning to gather around our square of plastic tables, the fluorescent lights buzzing overhead, and it's good to read a poem, write together, share what rough remembering or longing might materialize on the page, and it's good to laugh and cry together, share ourselves. It's enough to say goodbye too when the time comes. And we do this by shaking hands. Hugs are not allowed in the jail. When I hold the hand of a young woman who has shared a bit of her life with me, I hope I am conveying in that handshake, you have blessed me with your courage and your kindness. You have given me the scent of another life. I hope you will find your way. I hope you will take life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes. I hope you will say yes. I will take you life. 
I will love you again. May it be so. May it always be so.